0: Stephen really never lived to see all the fruit that would come out of his ministry and out of his death here. But you know, Paul says later on that, that some plant and some water, but it's God that gives the increase. And I don't think most Christians here will ever live to see the good that will come out of our lives and the fruit that will follow. And so a life can be brief and still do a lot of incredible good. And that's encouraging to me because even at my age, I know that I can still do some good. And at your age, there's still time for you to make a difference. No matter what age you are here, you can impact this world in a powerful way. So Stephen finishes strong. He's faithful. And I guess the challenge to us is to finish faithful. Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the book of Acts in the sixth chapter, Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 6. We've been studying the New Testament church there in the first century, and at this point, it is steamrolling the stuffy old Jewish religion of its day. In fact, we saw last time that even some priests were defecting, and it's getting out of control for the devil here. It's coming to a head, and honestly, the religious Jews had about had enough at this point. Somebody's gonna get hurt, and his name's gonna be Stephen. But before he does, he's going to preach one of the most powerful sermons in the whole Bible. And he's going to go out with a blaze of glory. Praise God for that. But we get introduced to him here in Acts chapter 6. And we pick it up in verse number 8 down to the end of the chapter. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians. And of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, that is Stephen, and saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. You know, I can imagine at that time as... Stephen walked down the streets of Jerusalem. Folks said, there goes old angel face. And we're going to be talking about old angel face today. But let's pray before we begin. Father, we just ask you to bless this time in thy word. Help us as God's people to see why the countenance of one could radiate so. Help us now to glean truth from this that would help us to be the Christians that we ought to be in the 21st century as they were in the first century. We pray now for your help to listen. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As a kid around Christmas time, and this was, of course, before all the electronic stuff, sometimes we would ask mom or dad for something that glowed in the dark. If you remember the little toys back then that they had, but some of them glowed in the dark, and, you know, kids today would think that's lame, but, you know, to us, that was a big deal. And you would take this toy, and you would, you would hold it up to either the sun, or you would hold it up to the light, and then you would go into a dark place. Or you'd turn off the light, ooh, and it would glow, and we'd throw it around. And, man, we thought that was really something. You know, glowing toys really parallel glowing believers or glowing Christians. And in the Bible, we find a Christian by the name of Stephen who had an angel face, as we've called him. Now, Stephen is kind of a, a, a transitional person between Peter. We've seen Peter doing all the preaching up to this point. Peter leading in so many ways as the, the pastor there in Jerusalem. But but we're going to see after this, Paul come on the scene. And Paul's gonna be doing a lot of the preaching and, and a lot of the leading there. And so you got Peter, you got Paul, you got these two giants, if you will, of the faith. And, and Peter was a, an apostle to the Jews, and Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, but Stephen's kind of a hinge between the two. He's really a Jew from a Gentile world. He was Greek, as we saw last time. Also, we saw that Peter has been the minister there in Jerusalem, if you will. And Paul, he's going to take the gospel to Rome. But Stephen, in fact, the persecution of Stephen is what catapulted the gospel out of Jerusalem into the Roman Empire. So he's really a key person here. In fact, Stephen's going to introduce us to Paul the Apostle. By the end of the next chapter, who I think is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a religious council of of uh, Jewish leaders, religious Jewish leaders, and I believe that Paul was on that council before he got saved because when they stoned Stephen to death, they laid the jackets at the feet of Saul, and he kind of kept track of the jackets for the rock throwers there. But Stephen is the forerunner of Paul in many different ways. In fact, we find here in this passage that it was Stephen's practice to go into the synagogues to debate the truth with the Jewish people, and later on, uh, Paul would do that. And we find here Stephen doing it with a great boldness, and later on, Paul would, would have that boldness. So no doubt, in my mind at least, that the death of Stephen left an indelible mark upon the mind of the Apostle Paul, and, and the dying face of this martyr Stephen, I don't think, was something that, that Paul ever got over. And later on, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, speaking of God's grace, he says, His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He's not bragging here. He gives God the credit, but he makes a point here that he outworked everybody else, all those apostles who had even come before him. There was something that drove Paul, and I got to believe it might be the fact that he was trying to make up for the death of somebody named Stephen, a death he was part of here, somebody who was a dynamo for God, and now he's gone here, and so you find Paul trying to make up for that loss. But Stephen here is going to ultimately pay the price. He's going to to die for the faith here. And if you look at all the commentaries on this passage, they will tell you that Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Others would argue, no, it was Jesus, but Jesus wasn't a martyr. He purposely went to the cross. In fact, that was foreordained in eternity past. If you really, however, want to know who the first Christian martyr is, you go back to the Gospels. It's John the Baptist. And that's another subject there we won't get into here, but Stephen would be the second Christian martyr, and his loss was definitely a tragic loss. In fact, there are some who would look at the loss of, of Stephen and say, boy, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, he was ha- he full of faith and power and the Holy Ghost. What a loss. Why would God allow that? Well, let me just say, it was God's will that Stephen go out in a blaze of glory, and he gets stoned to death. God's ways are not our ways. We have to remember that. They are so different than our ways. And maybe there are things going on in your life right now that don't make sense. And you say, this isn't the way I would do it. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. And Stephen did more good in his death than perhaps he could have done in his life. It catapulted the gospel out of Jerusalem into the region beyond as it should have here. But he didn't live very long. And you would say, well, he could have done so much more. But let me just say that uh, the impact of a man's life really isn't based on the length of his life. And there are some folks in, in the past that have done a great work for God at an early age. I think of William Borden. I think of Jim Elliott. I think of some others that really didn't live even beyond their 20s, much like Stephen here, and yet we don't forget them. And so a life can be brief and still do a lot of incredible good. And that's encouraging to me because even at my age, I know that I can still do some good. And at your age, there's still time for you to make a difference. No matter what age you are here, you can impact this world in a powerful way. So Stephen finishes strong. He's faithful. And I guess the challenge to us is to finish faithful, is to finish strong here. Stephen really never lived to see all the fruit that would come out of his ministry and out of his death here. But, you know, Paul says later on that, that some plant and some water, but it's God that gives the increase. And I don't think most Christians here will ever live to see the good that will come out of our lives and the fruit that will follow. But Stephen went out in a blaze of glory And he did a great work for God in a brief time. In our passage here, we want to see some things about old angel face. And we want to see what made him glow. But first of all, let's take a look at what I call the squabbling synagogue. In verse number 8, it tells us, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Notice the word full in verse number 8. It tells us, And Stephen, full of faith... That word in the Greek language means filled up to the brim. He he was full. He was filled up. He was full of faith, the Bible tells us. Now, where'd this faith come from? Well, same place all faith comes from. In Romans 10, 17, it says, So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by the Bible. You know, D.L. Moody, a preacher of the 1800s, was trying to grow in faith, and he was praying for more faith, And one day he read Romans 10, 17, and it dawned on him that faith comes by hearing the word of God. So he stepped up his time in God's word and his faith crew. But it really doesn't even say in this verse behind me that faith comes by reading the word of God, does it? It says faith cometh by hearing, hearing the word of God. That's what you're doing right now. May I commend you for being in the house of God right now, hearing the preaching of the word of God. You could have stayed home and live streamed. That would have been more convenient. But you counted it a worthy thing to get up and get dressed and come to the house of God today. And may God enhance your faith because faith cometh by hearing the word of God. I hope you are growing in faith. And some of us might even feel like the father of the demoniac who said, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. But faith comes by hearing the word of God. And Stephen had been in the scrolls. He had been in the parchments. He had been reading the Word of God, and he had learned some things as a result that gave him confidence to go to even death. From the Bible, he had learned, no doubt, that God rules in the affairs of man. And so whatever comes down as a result of this trial, if I get put to death, I'm okay with that. I believe from the Bible, he had also settled it that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that he did fulfill all the prophecies, and he believed in the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to say, I know whom I have believed, as a result of his time in the book. But I believe as a result of his time in the Bible, he was also able to face death calmly with his full confidence in God that this, if this was God's will, I'm okay with that. And so we find in verse 8 that Stephen was full of faith. He was full of faith. He took his faith seriously. Do you take your faith seriously? Now, just be honest. Do you really take your faith seriously? You know, on March 5th, 1981, I placed all my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was serious about that that night. I've been serious about that since. But it bothers me in these last days to see some Christians who are playing games with their faith. They're really not taking their faith seriously. May I say that we are part of the greatest cause on the face of the earth and absolutely everything else pales in comparison. And it really matters very little in the big scope who's going to win in the NFL this afternoon compared to what's going on here right now. And so we should take our faith seriously. In in light of Calvary and everything Jesus did for us and all that blood that he shed for us, how how are we going to die for him if we can't even live for him? Do we take our faith seriously? Put that question to yourself today. We find here that Stephen did. And we find out that he was was yielded. He was full of faith. He was submissive. And the result was a power that God gave him. In verse 8, it says Stephen was full of faith and power. Power. God rewarded him with power. God promoted him with power. Remember, he started out as a deacon. Now he's an evangelist. Now he's a preacher. Now he's even able to do miracles because he was faithful in little and God promoted him. You know, Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And Stephen had been faithful in little and if we'll be faithful in little, folks, God will promote us. God will give us more faith and God will give us more to do to exercise that faith. Well, this is where things Go downhill. This is where the wheels fall off. We get to verse number 9. It says, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing... With Stephen. Here's where we find the squabbling synagogue here. And and maybe you don't realize this. But a synagogue would be a, a like a Jewish church back in those days. It was a house of worship. It was a place where people came. And they discussed the Bible. It was a social place. And, and really for a Jewish person in the first century. Their world revolved around the synagogue. It was their culture. It was their life. It was everything. Every village. Every Jewish village. Had a synagogue in it. And the Talmud, which is a Jewish history book of of the, the Pharisees, tells us that at that time in Jerusalem, there were 480 synagogues. Can you imagine that? That'd be like Baptist churches in Georgia or Lutheran churches in Wisconsin. If if you went to Jerusalem in the first century, there were synagogues in every street corner. 480 of them. And there was one to the Libertines. That was a synagogue for men who had once been under uh, Roman slavery but had been freed. Libertines means freed men. Then notice also in verse number 9. It mentions a synagogue of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians. And those are towns on the Mediterranean coast in uh, in Egypt there, uh, or Africa, North Africa, if you will. And uh, what these synagogues were in Jerusalem of these different groups were kind of, I guess you could say, local synagogues in Jerusalem for various regions of the world. They were like uh, embassies, if you will. It's kind of like over in Dilworth, they have a, a little Italy right? And, and, and that's a place where years ago the Italians came and they settled. Or maybe in bigger towns they have a Chinatown, you know, and, and that's the place where the Chinese settled as they came there. So in Jerusalem they had actually segregated off into different synagogues, if you will. And verse number nine even mentions the synagogue to Cilicia. Uh, Cilicia there. Uh, there's a town in Cilicia known as Tarsus. Who was from Tarsus? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. That was probably the synagogue that he attended and he was a part of. Well, here's the deal. Stephen had the nerve, the audacity, if you will, to go into these synagogues, the home turf of these Jewish people, and actually take the name of Jesus into them and debate from the Old Testament scrolls about Jesus Christ. And you might think, man, he's just being in their face. But the truth is, he did it out of love, he did it out of concern, He did it out of compassion. He was bringing the gospel to these people. And in the synagogue to the Cilicians, he might have even debated with Saul of Tarsus in the early days. We don't know that, but Saul might have been there at the time. Remember this. Saul had been the star pupil of Gamaliel. He is a rising star in the Jewish religion. Probably a young man, maybe 30 at that time, but he's already on the Sanhedrin. And here's this this lowly Greek Hebrew showing up debating with Saul and his double PhD there if you can imagine that and so that's got to get Saul ticked off and we find out that after this point he's going to be a man on a mission and he's going to be trying to take down Christians and there's something that ignited that fire in him and I think it was Stephen I think we'll see that before we're done we see the squabbling synagogue but secondly we see a sticky situation and verse number 10 It says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he, Stephen, spake. Uh, They couldn't match wits with this guy. They couldn't go toe-to-toe with him and take the scrolls and, and outdo him. Here is Stephen, and he's taken the Old Testament. That's all they had at that time. And he's pointing out to these Jewish people all these prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. 333 in all. Verse after verse after verse. And he's giving them the gospel. And he's showing them the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. That was all predicted. And he is proving to them the messiahship of this one known as Jesus of Nazareth. And he's tying Saul in knots and he's tying the other rabbis in knots. And they are not able to resist the wisdom by which he's speaking because he's showing them the superiority of Bible believing Christianity now and the lameness of the Mosaic law. And this is going like a lead balloon over them. But he's trying to explain to them that their old faith is now defunct. That temple curtain, that tore in half, symbolized something. And by the way, they all knew about it. You don't hide a thing like that. We talked about it last week. And so he's bringing all of this to light and there's no hiding it. The Holy of Holies is wide open now. Anybody can see into it. And what do you do with that? How do you explain that? So here's Paul, not only flat-footed, but he's infuriated because he's been checkmated. And, and he can't outdo what Stephen's telling him here. In verse number 10, it says, They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, in other words, they're working craftily now, which said, We have heard him, that is Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So here's the Sanhedrin, here's Saul and company, and they're sick of being pushed around. That's it, that does it, no more of that. I mean, these these Christians have taken over the temple, they're all over Solomon's porch, they're all over Jerusalem by the thousands here. We've tried throwing them in prison, that won't shut them up. This is the last straw. Uh, we've had enough of this. And so their motto became, if you can't beat them, kill them. And that's exactly what they intended to do. They were going to accuse Stephen here of blasphemy. And if that's proven, it's a death sentence. They would take him down. Now, we find here they suborn men. they means they're, they're, they're getting guys to lie. And they're going to use deceit. And they're going to get Stephen stoned to death on the false testimony of some liar here. By the way, doesn't this smack of the Old Testament... Remember what Jezebel did with Naboth to get his vineyard there for 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 Ahab, and and now we find the same thing happening. They're recruiting some liars here to come in and uh, and and be these scoundrels. And there's always willing scoundrels, and and so they find some guys who are going to lie about Stephen here, and that is so odd in light of the ninth commandment mentioned back in Exodus 20, verse 16, which says, "Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor." And here's the same Jewish people who are so meticulous about the letter of the law and so indignant because here's this guy who's not keeping the letter of the law and now they're just flagrantly disobeying the ninth commandment and they're bearing false witness. Well, in verse number 12, it says, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him, upon Stephen, and caught him and brought him To the council. Notice they caught him and brought him, and in the Greek it means they seized him, and in the Greek it means they dragged him. This is a mob thing here. They caught him and they brought him to the council. We see the squabbling synagogue, we see the sticky situation. Thirdly, let's take a look at the sinister slander. In verse 13, it says, And they set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now, this is serious. These are serious charges. I mean, it's the death sentence if they can prove this. But keep in mind, these charges are made from their point of view, from their perception. It says, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Well, they didn't perceive Jesus as Messiah. They didn't perceive Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So naturally, of course, this will be blasphemy. But, but here you have them saying, we think this guy has broken the law and, and we can't get him to recant. This is heresy. By the way, there were tens of millions of our Anabaptist forefathers down through the Dark Ages who were put to violent deaths at the hands of the Church of Rome because they would not recant of their, quote, heresy. Well, it wasn't heresy at all. It was Bible truth. It was the Word of God. But you know, the the world is hostile when it comes to truth. And so often, this world is upside down in their thinking when it comes to truth. And you work with people who are upside down in their thinking. You are related to people who are upside down in their thinking. You live by people who are upside down in their thinking. And we have a world that has redefined the standards. And redefined what a family is, and redefined what a gender is nowadays, and and, and the morals have been redefined, and decency has been redefined. And woe be to the Christian who comes along with the truth, and woe be to the church that comes along with the truth. You know that Fargo Baptist Church is really in the minority now, and it's only getting worse. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but 75 years ago, we wouldn't have been. Even the unsaved world would have agreed for the most part with where we stand on the issues here. But but Christians today are under extreme pressure to capitulate and so many areas here. And if if you walk with Christ, you go, you're going to be resented in the workplace. You're going to be resented in the high school. You're going to be resented in the college. I read a few weeks ago about a young lady, a Christian lady, in Berkeley University near San Francisco who's taken a stand for Christ and not in an obnoxious way at all. But I'm telling you, they just lambasted her there. I'm telling you, you are going to take a stand for Christ in these last days and going to have to stand the minority because Christian convictions are counter-cultural. Have you noticed that? Christian convictions now are counter-cultural. Well, Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That's what Christ said. And that's true today as it was then. In verse 14, they go on. They're talking about Stephen and they say, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now, they were fanatical about Moses. You need to understand that about the Jews in the first century. Everything was about Moses. Everything is about Moses' law. Well, what they failed to realize is that Moses actually endorsed Jesus. He said in his day, there's going to come a prophet like me. God's going to raise him up. Jesus was that prophet. Not only that, but 1,500 years later at the time of Christ, Guess who appears to Jesus on top of Mount Tabor and discusses him going to Calvary? It's Moses. Jesus had the endorsement of Moses. And Stephen wasn't knocking Moses here. He had a huge respect for him, as you're going to see in the next chapter in his sermon. Uh, He's not knocking Moses at all. Now, notice in verse 14, they say of Stephen, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. You could almost feel the contempt in their voice. Nazareth. It had a nasty connotation in that day. It was the wrong side of the tracks in that day. In fact, there was a proverb back in that day that went something like this. Can there come anything good out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what they thought. So it was kind of a joke on a street corner. (laughs) Oh, you know, they're from Nazareth. (laughs) Well, yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We know how that goes. Well, we find out that they're mocking Jesus because he was from Nazareth. And we find out also in verse number 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. What place? The temple. They'd made an idol out of that temple. That that he would destroy this place. Well, this was something they had taken totally out of context. Jesus had said this in John 2.19. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Remember when he said that? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Well, you remember what he was talking about? In verse 21, it says, but he spake of the temple of his body. Well, they had twisted that. They'd embellished that. And somehow now they're saying that Jesus claimed he was going to destroy the temple. Well, there's another place that uh, we find in Matthew 24 where he predicted the destruction of the temple. It says, and Jesus said unto them, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's in the temple when he says that. He says it to his disciples. I don't know how it got back to the Sanhedrin, but somehow this thing was circulating that Jesus had claimed he was going to destroy the temple. He didn't say here he was going to destroy it. Somebody's going to destroy it. In fact, 30 years later or 40 years later, we find that the Romans would destroy it when Titus, the Roman general, sent his army there and, and they destroyed the temple and it burned... And the gold melted and it ran down between the stones. And they took the stones apart one at a time to scrape that gold out. And what Christ said came to pass. Not one stone was left upon another, but Jesus had not said he would destroy the temple. So they're lying here. They're embellishing some words here. We see the sinister slander, but finally, let's look at the shining saint, old angel face. In verse number 15, it says, and all that sat in the council... Looked steadfastly on him and saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, here's a Sanhedrin, and they expect to look at Stephen and see some cringing and some cowering and some crying. None of that. They see confidence, they see love, they see radiance, they see this sparkling saint, angel face. And what a contrast that had to be to the faces of the Sanhedrin at that time. Can you imagine what they looked like? The bitterness on them, the anger, the wrath, the indignation, all the above. But here's old angel face. Now, let me just say this. There's something about a Christian and the countenance of a Christian who's been walking with God. And as I think of Stephen, an old angel face, I think of one other person in the Bible that had the same issue, if you want to call it that. And it's that very Moses we were talking about a moment ago. When Moses went up on the top of, the, of Mount Sinai there to get the law, he spent so much time with God, something happened. The Bible says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him or close to him. Moses came down to people and, yeah, you remember Mo on the Three Stooges? I I can picture, you yeah, their hair standing up there and, oh, yeah, he's radioactive. And and Moses, he's going, what, what, what? And they hand him a mirror and he goes, whoa. And and so he has to wear a veil from that time forth unless he goes in to talk to God, the temple there. But in the New Testament, it says this. Second Corinthians 3, 7 says, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance they couldn't even look upon him he was he was glowing there because he had been with God he had spent time with God like Enoch like Moses like others you know when we spend time with God it's going to impact us it's going to affect us and we find here that Stephen is not the least bit intimidated by the Sanhedrin and you know why because he had been with one far greater think about that He had spent time with God. And folks, we spend time with God and suddenly the world's not so scary. Suddenly the fear of man, it kind of evaporates. We're not so intimidated anymore. Stephen had spent time with God. Now the world is not so impressive here. We find him glowing because he had been with God and God had rubbed off on him. And you know why that, that works that way? Because the Bible tells us that God is light. God is light. In fact, did you know that in heaven, there's not going to be any other source of light. There's not going to be street lights and flashlights and headlights and even the sun to shine. We're told this in Revelation 21:23 that the city, this heavenly Jerusalem, had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. You will never get an electric bill in heaven, There will be no XL energy. <laughs> We're not going to eat any of that stuff, praise God. Because God's going to lighten that city one day. That heavenly city, Jerusalem. Now, when we hang around God, he rubs off on us. In fact, that, that really goes for anyone you hang around. They're going to rub off on you. And if you're a Christian and you're spending time with God like Stephen did, you're going to really show it in your countenance. There's going to be that glow. You know, somebody so well said our faith gives us away and how true that is. Good or bad, our faith our faith really can give us away. And you can tell if someone's doing well or someone's not doing too well. I'm thinking of a young man. I'm, I'm thinking of a young man right now that years ago I led him the Lord. And uh, he had the glow of God on him for a long time. I can tell right now he's not doing very well and justifying it. And the devil has gotten to him. And that will happen here and our countenance will give us away when it does happen. You know, we find this back in Genesis 4, 6. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? Why is thy countenance fallen? You know, Cain's face gave him away because sin darkens the glow of God. Is there anything in your life currently that should not be there. That is affecting your glow for God. Any bitterness, any anger, any wrath, Every any clamor, every, any, any selfishness. What is it that made Stephen glow? Well, he had been with God. No question about that. Secondly, we know this. He was a witness for Christ. He was a witness for the cause of Christ. In Daniel 12, 3... It says, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Did you catch that? We find here that those who are witnesses for Christ are going to glow in eternity, and they're going to glow somewhat here as well. There's something about sharing your faith with others that brings an excitement to your life and a glow to your face. Well, what else? In verse number eight, we saw that Stephen was full of faith and he was also full of power. And and the word full means filled up. He was filled with God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. We're aware of that? Be filled with the Spirit. But the question is, how? How is a Christian filled with the Spirit? Well, the next verse goes on. It says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In other words, singing. Singing the good old hymns. Singing the songs about the Lord. Did you sing any this last week? Outside of the singing you do in church, do you sing during the week? Do you sing the songs of Zion? I'll tell you what, that'll do something to your countenance. That will do something to your heart. No doubt Stephen sung. And the Bible talks about making a joyful noise unto the Lord. You might not sing that well. Maybe that's how you describe your singing. A joyful noise, but still sing. There's something about singing and what it'll do to the heart. But then in the next verse, it goes on. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, We can't emphasize that enough. We've been talking about that a lot recently, but if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you want to have the joy of the Lord on your face, not only share your faith, not only spend time with God, not only sing the songs of Zion, but take some time daily to thank God for all of His blessings. That will do something to your heart. I cannot emphasize that enough. But then the next verse goes on. And it says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God It's talking about a selfless life here. It's talking about a surrendered life here. It's talking about a life of servanthood. Submitting yourselves one to another. The person who's full of themselves is not going to have the glow of God on their face. The Christian who's not being a servant is not going to glow. Now, if we practice these things, the result is a cheerful heart. Let me also say this. Proverbs 15, 13 says, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. There's that glow we're talking about. All these things add up to the glowing Christian who has a right spirit and a right attitude because they have a right heart. You know, I was reading this last week about some creatures down in the sea that are hundreds of feet down where where the booger man wouldn't even go. I mean hundreds of feet down there. And they glow. you know there are squid that glow? Hundreds of feet down below the ocean surface. And did you know that there are, are things like uh, jellyfish that glow? And they even have something they call the flashlight fish. And it glows. Here's these glowing creatures in this really dark place. You know, our Creator made some things to glow. I think He wants Christians. To glow. In fact, I read Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, "Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christian, is there anything hindering that glow today? We've been told here to let our light shine before men. Is there anything, child of God, that is hindering that glow? And maybe you sit here today and you don't know if you are a child of God. Maybe you sit here today and you don't know for sure you've been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. They're under the blood. You don't know for sure you'd go to heaven if you were to die. You don't know for sure you've been born again. In fact, you don't understand what it means to be born again. If you're here today and you have never been saved, the glowing life of that of a Christian begins with realizing you're a sinner, unable to save yourself, Baptism does not wash your sin away. Baptism does not make you a child of God. It's the blood of Christ that was shed for your sins. And all of your faith must be in that sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary's cross. That blood he shed on Calvary's cross. It all boils down to an experience you need to have at some point in your life between birth and death. When you turn from your sins and repentance and you put all your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're born again the Bible way. In John 12, 46, Christ says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If you're here today, do you know that light? Have you received that light? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you are a Christian, and there is something that is dimming that glow in your life repent of it repent of it repent of it you see the bible says of christians in proverbs 4:18 but the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day the path of the just is as a shining light it's to be getting brighter and brighter as we get closer to heaven unto that perfect day there was a preacher years ago and I don't remember his name I just remember that it was said of him that every night he looked like he went to heaven and came back (laughs) and they called him old glory face old glory face yeah as a kid I got those toys at Christmas or for my birthday and I I put them in that light and I let them absorb that light I held them up in the sun and I let them absorb that light and then I took him inside, and I turned off the light. And I went, ooh, as I watched it glow, as I watched it glow in the dark. May I say, if you're a child of God, let's be radiant Christians in a sin-darkened, and a sin-blackened world. And, and let's, let's be like Stephen, and let's glow in the dark. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.